You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Does everybody have an outline of for tonight? If you don't, please raise your hand. Edward in the back and uh, I think Matt Whitson have a couple left. If you're with us for the first time tonight, um, one of the things that we, we do on a I guess for about the last 10 to 12 years, is we, in January, do an insight seminar where uh, we bring in a guest speaker who is going to, to talk uh, at, a, at a pretty profound level about that book or about that topic as a, a preparation for all of our teachers, as in uh, March, April, and May, as a church, we're going to study in our adult classes and through the sermons the same book. And this year, it's Romans. And as you know, Romans is one of the most important pieces of literature that has ever been written. The impact on history has been tremendously profound. It has influenced some of the greatest thinkers of all time. And that's, uh, that's the study that we're in here at Mac. And uh, tonight we're going to be looking at the second chapter and going all the way down through the, uh, the third chapter. And we're going to be following up on some things that we started this morning. You'll remember that Paul has already introduced the gospel as a power of God. That it's not just a philosophy, it's not just a piece of wisdom, it's all of that, but it's more. It's a power. It's a power from God that saves people and changes people and radically reforms their soul and their lives and their way of thinking and their, primarily their relationship with God. And to understand the gospel, uh, Paul begins in a dark place. Uh, this morning we talked about one of the great writers of the, the 20th century, a, a religious writer by the name of Frederick Buechner, who in writing about the gospel reminds people that the gospel is good news. But before it can be good news, it has to be bad news. It has to be tragic news. It has to be the truth about who we are as human beings in God's eyes. Not in our own eyes at, at, at human level, but what does the gospel look like when, when it, it's, it's, uh, it's understood from the perspective of heaven or from the angle of angels? And that's where we're going to continue tonight, uh, the same trajectory that we had this morning. And let's begin with a word of prayer, and we'll jump into this text. 
Father, the greatness of what You do every day in Your creation is just a marvel to us. We try to understand it from, from the angle of love. The, the angle of compassion and mercy and forgiveness. And yet there is this tremendous patience. This tremendous self-control on Your part in light of what we've done to Your good creation. There's Your faithfulness, Father, to Your creation and to Your creatures. Faithfulness to, to Your will and to Your promises. And when we begin to, to, to press our mind into all of these different ways that, that You teach us and interact with us through the Gospel, Father, we're just completely undone. What You have done, Father, is, is overwhelming to us. And what we pray, Father, is that, is that we, we be given help tonight to understand so that, that what it is that our brother Paul is trying to communicate to us about Your Gospel, Father, that it goes all the way down in the inside. And that we're not just moved, but we're changed. And to this end, Father, that we pray in the name of Jesus that You will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that we talked about this morning in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, going to the end of the chapter, verse 32, is that what Paul is doing is talking about the human dilemma. In other words, what do I do with the knowledge of God? And we talked about how the Greeks described a dilemma as, as a, a, a horned animal, a bull with, with gigantic horns, and you were trying to get around it. That was the dilemma. How do you do that? If you go on the right side, you're going to get the right horn. If you go on the left side, you're going to get the left horn. How do you get around the bull? Thus, the dilemma. Same is true when it comes to the knowledge of God. Paul says everybody has it. Everybody has it, but they have to make a decision with it. Do they suppress it? Or do they accept it? If I, I choose to fully submit to God my Creator, accept Him as my Father, accept Him as the supreme value of the universe, then I don't get to do what I want to do. My life is not my own. I've been made by the Creator. Therefore, my obligations and all of my life belong to Him. If I suppress it, that is, that is I... I, I want to stand on that knowledge, on, on the lid of that knowledge to hold it in. I want to hold it back. I, I, want to, I, I want to put it behind me. If I want to suppress the knowledge of God, then I have to live with the consequences of, of idolatry. One of the things we talked about this morning as well is that humans are built for worship. And if they do not worship God, then they will worship something else. Human beings are built for worship. And the Bible never says worship the Bible says, worship God. The Bible assumes that we are going to worship. And if it's not God, then it's going to be an idol. And the idol, as we talked about this morning, is an attempt by human beings to reconstruct the world in the opposite direction of God. And the decision that humans, by and large, have made to suppress the knowledge of God has led to the human condition. The human dilemma leads to the human condition. We are, we are in, in, in so many, at so many levels a wreck. And even a quick reading of, of those last six or seven verses of, of chapter 1 reveals a world that has been recreated opposite, in opposite direction of what God created in Genesis 1 and 2. 
But here's the thing when we get to chapter 2. There were people in the ancient world that would have been incredibly uncomfortable with the immoral, wicked life that Paul is describing at the end of chapter 1. In the first place, there were a lot of Romans who were very concerned with the questions of what constitutes a good life. Uh, before all of this money poured into Rome, as the empire expanded and all of that wealth came into Rome and it began to corrupt the nation, there were tremendous questions about what it meant to be a good man, what it meant to, to, to be a proper human being. And the Romans, who really liked Greek philosophy, tried to make it practical. They thought that the Greeks were intelligent, brilliant, genius-level individuals when it came to philosophy, but they thought that their thoughts were stuck in the clouds. What the Romans attempted to do was to take the loftiness of the Greek thought and to turn it into pragmatics. Uh, a, a way to kind of condense it is the Greeks would have said, this is what you ought to be. The Romans took it a step further and said, this is how to be what you ought to be. An example, uh, during the time that Paul is writing, Nero is, is the emperor. Uh, Claudius has been dethroned about 52 uh, A.D., uh, Nero is now in charge. And during the early part of Nero's, Nero's uh, reign as emperor of the Roman Empire, and this would be about 57 A.D. when Paul has written this letter, you know, Nero is still under control. Nero is still a very, very decent emperor, but it's because he's under the tutelage and the mentoring of, of Seneca. And then once Seneca has moved off of the stage, then, then Nero's depravity takes over. But he would have agreed, Seneca would have agreed with Paul on the depravity issues that mankind faced in the pagan world. Now remember, that's not when, when Paul is speaking about these folks that are pagan in nature, he's not talking about atheists. Atheism is more of a, of a, of a modern phenomenon. What he's talking about are people that do not recognize God, that, that they're, they're polytheistic in nature. Now, again... Paul has described this depraved humanity that in the human dilemma has not chosen God but has chosen the idols. He's, he's, he's not the only one that would have said that that was an utterly ruinous life. The, many of the Romans would have said the same thing. And secondly, the Jews would have said the same thing. That's right. People who do not know God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, are depraved. Too bad they don't have the Word of God. And so Paul has two different groups that he has to address before he can get to the good news of the Gospel. And he's going to continue, beginning in chapter 2, this line of thought, this trajectory of thought that he is going to bring to culmination in chapter 3 and verse 23, where he says, All have what? Sinned. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. But to get there, he has to address the moralist and the legalist. Now, first, the critical moralist. You know as well as I do that the world is full of people who strive to be morally superior. Everywhere you go, you run into people that look down on other people because their behavior in their own eyes is better, is deemed in their own thinking to be better than the people that are around them. They look down on them. They say, I'm acceptable because I'm better than Joe Schmo from Kokomo down the street. He does all of these bad things. I don't do them. I must be okay. Here's what Paul writes. Chapter 2, verse 1. You have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. The moralist says, look at me in comparison to the fellows that you just described at the end of chapter 1. Morally speaking, I'm not in that. Morally speaking, 
I'm above that. Morally speaking, I'm the better person. But a couple of problems are inherent and Paul brings them out. First, the moralist is guilty of the same thing that Paul is described in the person whose life has been shattered on the face of idols. Just being a step or two down the road morally is not the same thing as living a sin-free life in the presence of a holy God. And so he says in verse 2, so when you, a mere human being, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? You want the differences? The difference between the moralist and the person that Paul has described at the end of chapter 1, the difference is that in the first group, they not only do what is wrong, but Paul says in the very last verse, they approve of the others who do them as well. The difference is that the moralist condemns it. And then secondly, the moralist also has a knowledge of God that he does not act on. Listen to, to, to these two verses. In verse 2, now we know that God's, now we know, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. He's appealing to a, a common knowledge that they have about God, about God's judgment, about the truth, and God's actions when it comes to human beings. And then down in verse 4, he says, Do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? The moralist is looking down on others and shows contempt toward them. And when he does that, he is not emulating God's behavior. God's patience and God's tolerance and God's kindness is not to drive people towards God's judgment, but to change them and to turn them back and to change their mind and to change their life and to cause them, as Paul says in, 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 in Romans chapter 2, to repent. The end result is because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, in verse 5, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. That God's wrath is not just coming upon those that have this knowledge of God, His eternal nature and His divine power. That it's, it's not just wrath for folks like them who have suppressed that truth. And their hearts are darkened and their, their thoughts futile. But it's also for those that say, you know what, I'm okay because I'm better than that individual. Which is in essence saying, I don't really need God to get me out of the mess that I've made of my life and the mess that I'm making in other people's lives because I'm a step or two down the road. I'm a step or two better in the whole morality play. The end result is because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Do you see how the human dilemma continues? The human dilemma is, what am I going to do with this knowledge of God? This knowledge of God, what am I going to do with it? What am I going to decide? Am I going to go right or left? Am I going to submit myself completely to God's role as Creator and Father and supreme value of the universe? Or am I going to, to suppress that truth and, and, and tamp down that truth and stuff it down and make sure that it's behind me where I don't have to see it so I can do whatever I want to do? In this particular case, it's the self 
that becomes the idol. It is a system of values when it comes to ethic and values of, of morality that become the idol. The self is the Savior. The self becomes the idol. And one of the things that, that we've said at the beginning of this series and that we've said over the years is that remember folks, the Gospel is not that you can be saved. Every religion in the world teaches that if you do this or you do that or you, you attain this level or you get to this stage or this step, you can be saved. The Gospel of the Bible, the Gospel of Romans, the Gospel of Paul is that you are saved by grace, which is a gift of God. Which now brings us to the critical legalist. And as you, as you have read and gone through this in your class, you know that this is a tremendous amount of material. In the time that we have tonight, we can't hit all of the, the things that he says about the moralist or the legalist. But, but here are a couple of things to, to think about when it comes to, to the, the whole issue of legalism. Grace plus something else in order to get into relationship with God and into the kingdom of God. From the moralist, Paul is going to turn to the legalist and address specifically the Jewish, Jewish Christians in Rome. Uh, one of the, 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 the great commentators of, of the last 40 years, a fellow by the name of Jane, uh, John R.W. Stott, uh, interestingly enough, identifies eight verbs that sort of reveal or uncover the Jewish self-consciousness of which he would be very, very familiar in the first, uh, about the first, first three or four verses, beginning in verse 17, he says, now if you call, he says, being proud of the chosen people's name, the, the Jewish people knew that they had been called by God. They had been called out of slavery. They had been called to be God's special possession in Exodus. After they were spending about nine to twelve months at the foot of Mount Sinai in, in, in the presence of smoke and fire and lightning and trumpet calls in the presence of a holy God, they had been called. And that was part of their, their self-consciousness. We are called to be God's people. But also in that verse, he says, and if you rely on the law, the law that was given at Mount Sinai, the, the, the trusting in it was a shield against disaster in the mind of the Jewish nation. The third verb that kind of helps us to understand the self-consciousness of the Jews or the self-identity of the Jewish nation, they brag about the relationship to God, an expression of Jewish pride and monotheism. We know God. We understand the one true God, the one who is Creator, the one who has revealed Himself through all of these names in the Old Testament. We know Him. Brag about your relationship to God, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 17. In verse 18, knowing His will which is the product of having the law, the Torah, the, 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 the ten words, the Decalogue that were delivered from Mount Sinai. All of the prophets, all of the wisdom lit, all of, all of the writings that were inspired, knowing His will, the product of having His word. Also in verse 18, and you approve of what is superior, it's just another way. But Paul said the Jewish people, the Hebrews, had the ability to discern the difference between spiritual teachings. They had had the teachings of God, the inspired words of God, the words that were first couched and birthed in God's heart and then transmitted through the Spirit to, to His people, they had those words to study and to think. In fact, that's what they were commanded to do. Morning, day, and night. During the middle of the night. Meditate on the law of God. Meditate on His Word. It will make you wise. It will protect your life. And you will be able to approve what is right and what is wrong. What is superior and what is inferior. He says, he says at the end of verse 18, Instructed because you are instructed by the law. 
This was how they were able to, to discern the right from the wrong. Verse 19, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, meaning that they taught others about the law, that they were a light to the nations, that they, they were transmitting God's will to all of the people, to all of the ears. They were living it, manifesting it, demonstrating it before the eyes of all of the human beings in the world that they came into contact with. And then finally in verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have, you possess in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. They had it. But when it came to the law, Paul says, there is no living up to that knowledge. And everybody knows what he means by that, right? I mean, think, think about your own prayer life. Think about, think about your, own, your own understanding of God's, of God's will for your life in terms of, of how you live every day. Think about God's will when it comes to your value system. You know that certain things are to be valued over other things. That God is God and that He is God over all and there are no gods before Him. And in terms of, of practical ethics of how we live our life, how do we value other people in gossiping and stealing and adultery, coveting and murder and all of these different kinds of things? We all have a knowledge that we're not able to catch up with with our life. And that's what Paul is trying to get across. When it comes to the law, they do not live up to their knowledge. They, they taught against stealing, yet they stole. They taught against adultery, and yet they polluted their own marriages lustful thoughts and, and, and were guilty of committing adultery. They abhor idols, but they rob temples. And the same was true of circumcision. It wasn't just the law that became that, that, uh, that, 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 uh, that identity uh, structure for the Jewish people. It was, it was also circumcision. The circumcision was to remind them that they were different from all of the surrounding nations. And what made them different was not necessarily the circumcision. That was the reminder. The reminder was that you're different because you have a covenant with God. That God has entered into covenant with you. That it has been ratified. That, that it has been agreed to. And that they were in this special covenant with God that had failed. Their circumcision did not make them what their disobedience proved that they were not. And so Paul says, quoting the prophets, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Do you see how the human dilemma plays once again into the human condition? Epic failure. Part of the problem was, was reading the Bible in such a way that they made it all about them. Made it about what, what to do and and. and, and and, and how to do it. And, and, and how to perform it. And, and it was not the, 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 the understanding of God's Word that opened their eyes to, to the Messiah. It was not the kind of information that, that radically changed them into people that were completely dependent upon God. But self-righteous. And in chapter 3, Paul says, What shall we conclude then? having talked about humanity in general and then people who said, that's right, there is a, a major depravity in the world that is, that is, 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 is something that disgusts me. And, and, and those who say, you know what, um, I'm not like that because I'm morally superior. And then there were those that said, I, I, you know, I, 
My, my, whole, my whole self-consciousness is in the fact that I possess a certain piece of information and a certain thing has been done to my body to show that I am special. And Paul says, what, what are we going to conclude with all of that? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, and then this is just sort of his clinch. This is the conclusion to this particular thought. He just, Paul just goes into uh, 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 quoting Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. He says, there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul has taken verses 18 through 32 of the first chapter and gotten dark. But then he goes even further into that cave, into that tunnel, by saying, you know what? I understand that there are people out there that look at what I've just described and said, you know, that's not right either. We, we agree with you, Paul. We're disgusted with that as well. And guess what? You're guilty of the exact same things. The knowledge of God that you have, in particular His judgment, is not something... That, that changes the way that, that you live. You understand that God's patience and kindness is, is shown to you in such a way to bring you to repentance, and yet you judge. God's wrath is for you too. Because you've not accepted and embraced God. A human dilemma. And then he turns to the Jewish audience for the first time in the entire letter. And as you know, the letter to the Romans was written primarily to, to the Gentiles with Jewish people listening in. And Paul, every once in a while, is going to address them as he writes this letter. And he says, guess what? After he's been saying all of these things about the Gentile population, he says, we're in the same boat. And we... We brag about our relationship with God. We rely on God. We have, we have experiences with God. We know the law. We've been entrusted with the law. We've been entrusted not only with the law, but to be a light to all of the world. And yet we have had epic failure after failure after failure when it comes to trying to do it perfectly. We who abhor idols are stealing from temples. We who hate and teach others about the wrongness of adultery do the same thing. We say don't steal. Guess what we're doing? We're stealing. The same kind of thing that Jesus tried to get across in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, just because you are ethically, technically, I should say not eth uh, ethically, but technically, not killing somebody, do you know what you're doing to somebody that's made in the image of God when you say, you fool, to that icon of God, person made in the likeness of God? He says, we have failed. This is what it boils down to. The world has just run amok in so many directions because we choose to go our own way. And the result of that is that it seems like the world is filled with poison and it seems like the world is, is filled with corruption and, it's, and nobody can trust anybody and everybody's doing their own thing and nobody could care less about God. We, we have chosen to suppress God. That's how we're godless. We're less God. That's how we're godless. And we've chosen to go our own way. And Paul says, that's what we conclude about human beings. 
But thankfully, that's not where he ends the book of Romans. The book of Romans from this point on, all the way through the end of chapter 11, is going to talk about is going to talk about God from so many different angles and so many different dimensions that we could spend the rest of our life thinking about it and not plumb the depths of it. And the whole reason He does that is not just to instruct our mind, to really humble us. You know, what happens causes somebody to repent? Come to their senses. Is it not that they get to this place where they finally have their eyes open to see truth, the truth about themselves and the surroundings that they have placed themselves in or gotten themselves into, to see that truth in such a way that it comes home, it comes home as, 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 as a fact that is undeniable. And for the first time in that humility and in that modesty before God, they begin to turn toward God in such a way that they begin to see Him in a different light. And Paul has been talking about the wrath of God and God giving them over to a depraved mind, meaning that sin becomes the consequence of sin. People have said to to God, it's going to be My way. And God has said to them, Your will be done. And sin, as Augustine has said, becomes the consequence for sin. And it becomes so complicated, as we talked about this morning with pollution, that, that it, it has become so complicated that it's hard just to pick it apart and to see where there's any duplicity, any, any, any guilt, any... It, it just so... It, it becomes a world. Well, the world is thus and thus that we make it. But then Paul begins to talk about the greatness of the Gospel and we are so humbled by what he says that it just it gets a hold of us. One of, one of my favorite parables is the parable of the lost son. And the parable is really about the older lost son. And the younger lost son is part of the story. But that, that younger boy has said to his father, I'm going to do it my own way. Why can't you give me the inheritance while I'm still young enough to enjoy it and not burned out on life, you know, I can't enjoy it, why don't you give me the inheritance? And for some reason, in the mystery of the will and the, the, the wisdom of the Father, He gives it. And the boy goes off and he does the depraved thing. And the, and the boy does the thing that is out of character for, the, for his family name and the, the, the son that he was created to be. And at some point, while he's, while he's there with pigs... He sees all of the uncleanness, all of the unkosherness life has become. And the Bible says that He comes to His senses. And we think, way to go. Way to go. He's finally getting it. He's, he's, he's going to be making some decisions now. He's, he's beginning to see the world as it really is. He's beginning to take responsibility. He's beginning to understand the consequences of his actions. He's beginning to make decisions. Keep going, keep going. And we think that the great part of the story is that this boy gets up and he says, I will return. But here's the thing. In essence, he was asking for the inheritance 
because he wished his father dead. He didn't deny that he had a father. He was just suppressing the father. I don't want to live your way. I don't want to live according to your rules. I want all of this good stuff that you have created and that you are going to bless me with. I want all of that stuff, but I want to run it the way that I want to run it. I want to do it the way that I want to do it. I want to do what I want to do because that's the way that I want to do it and you can't make me do it any other way because that's the way that I want to do it. Suppressing the knowledge of the Father. Now he's decided that he's come to his senses. He's hallelujah. He's coming home. Here's the deal. So what? He's decided that he wants to go home. He's already burned the bridges. What makes him think that there's a bridge left? The good news is not that he repented. You know what the good news is? Is that that father was looking for him. And when he saw that kid coming down the driveway, he ran to him and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. How could he kiss him? It's so out of character for a patriarch in the ancient Middle East to to gird up his loins and to run. It's so undignified. Who does it? But that father did. And he kissed him. Even though the son said, I wish, metaphorically speaking, you were dead so I could get the inheritance. Kissed him. Why did he kiss him? How could he kiss him? He could because he'd been kissing him every day in his heart. The bad news is that we're like that kid. And we're like the older boy as well, who we may never have done anything as immoral and depraved as that kid. But we're in it for what we can get out of the Father as well. And the Father goes out to him and says, Will you please come in? That parable is so powerful. Because it's such terrible news that ends with great news. The bridges are still there. When you begin to think about God's love and you think, you know, it's it's unfathomable. His own son died for us. But then you begin to think about His self-control. It's kind of funny. When you take all of the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5 and you begin to think about the Gospel, all of a sudden it just explodes. Love Joy, peace with God that he's going to write about in Romans chapter 5. But think about that self-control. Could have kicked us to the curb. Could have said, burn the bridges. Burn them to the ground. The boy is gone. He's chosen his own way. He's not one of us. Let him go. He kept in self-control righteous indignation from burning the place up. Faithfulness to his promises even though we are the ones who are so guilty of breaking promise after promise after promise after promise. After covenant after covenant. After vow after vow. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Because 
God in His righteousness will not always do the right and the holy thing. But righteousness also speaks about the way that God loves. It defines the kind of love that God has for us. It's not the kind of lovey-dovey, gooey kind of... uh, My apologies to the middle school kids, but that middle school kind of ooey-gooey kind of love. It's a righteous kind of love that sees the greatness of His will accomplished. And not just done in a legalistic way, but to be done in such a way that it can be called redemption. That it can be called that it can be called redemption, that we have been bought out so that we're not saved and forgiven, but that we are saved and forgiven unto relationship with God to become His, His children. God does a marvelous thing with the Gospel. But before the Gospel is good news, it's got to be horrible, horrific, terribly bad news. And it begins with an understanding of who we really are as human beings. Sometimes, because of what's written on our heart with eternity on our heart, we do the right thing. That's what Paul says in in Romans 2. Sometimes the Gentiles get it right. That's not the same thing as being a son. So tonight, do you want the Gospel in your life? Do you want to come out of the life that you see that you are living and living in and is living in you in light of of all of these things that God's Word has revealed about God and His love and about His His plan, that there there be relationship once again, that the bridge is there and the bridge is His Son. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Ben is going to lead us in a song. It's It's time to praise God. To praise God with all of our heart. It's also a time to do business with God. And if there are ways that we can minister to you tonight... We want you to come down and talk to these shepherds here at the front as we stand and sing together. The splendor of a king.